tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, my duplicate car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult Worthy Classic episode number 22. Now before I get going, I've got a couple updates for you. I am in the process of moving both of my shows to a new podcasting platform. So you may notice a slight delay in releases over the next couple weeks. You might also notice some episodes disappearing which will be re-uploaded once the process is complete. So I thank you in advance for your patience. Just a heads up, I might be on and off the next couple weeks while I get this sorted out. Now, as for today's episode, I have a very special guest. I have Daniel Hess out of Baltimore. He is an independent filmmaker and producer, and most recently a novelist, with his newest novel being released on Amazon and Amazon Digital, entitled Focus Puller. We spend the first part of the episode talking about the independent film scene in Baltimore, as well as his new book, right before we jump into The Court Jester, the Danny Kaye classic starring Glynis Johns, Angela Lansbury, and Basil Rathbone. It's a hilarious musical romp with Danny Kaye in top form, and I can't wait for you to hear our views on that film. So without further ado, my friend Daniel Hess. Enjoy the show. And continuing my Indie Spotlight series, I have a talented young filmmaker and author here joining me from Baltimore, Daniel Hess of Two Tony Productions. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for jumping on. You know, we connected over social media like so many people do these days. And I've been really focusing, like I said, on this Indie Spotlight. I want to know what the young filmmakers and creators out there are doing in this world of Marvel movies and Blumhouse <laughs> movies, I don't know how many Star Wars series we have now. One of the themes that I bring up all the time on this show is that so many people are just saying that we're rehashing ideas, we're recycling old intellectual properties, and original ideas and original films and projects are dead. I disagree because I see A24 and Neon and Blumhouse and a lot of things coming out from England and Europe that are kind of growing like this new kind of cult following. And in my opinion, that's the future of cinema as people start to get a little bit tired of intellectual properties like Star Wars and MCU. Here you are, double threat, kind of triple threat, because you're writing, you're making films, and you've got your own little production company out of Baltimore. Let's hear all about that, man, how this all gets started. Yeah, man. Uh so, I mean, writing kind of came about from a pretty young age for me. Uh, I can always, I'll never forget growing up, I used to love uh, getting the VHS tapes of old Godzilla movies from the 60s and 70s and just binge watching those and coming up with my own plot lines for different monsters for Godzilla to fight and things like that. Um, and as I got older, it was just one of those things that was, it was always on the back burner. 
And, you know, growing up without any direct family that was either in film or writing, it was pretty difficult because, you know, it was like nobody could really picture like, hey, this is a career. This is things you can do. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to have a really close friend in high school who was really into film and we connected through that. And he sort of gave me the inspiration and courage to just dive in headfirst in the film world. Um, so I went to college for that. And then a few years went by, got got done with that and just started Two Tony Productions. And I've sort of been churning about ever since doing both, you know, videography and creative work. And then really over the last couple of years, it's been more of the back to the writing roots that were always there. Mm. Um, but again, finding that confidence within me to say, hey, this is what I want to do and this is what I love. So I've been able to, you know, write a few feature scripts that I'm like actively working on getting produced right now. And then, of course, the novel and my first book, which was a book of poetry as well. So it's just been the last few years of this sort of creative explosion, as I like to call it, uh, that I've just been trying to put as much content out there in written form and then just trying to get more into the indie feature film space because I agree completely that, you know, there is amazing work being done out there. Uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, it just goes a little unnoticed from the masses, but those who do get to see it and experience it definitely appreciate it on a deeper level yeah. uh, because there are so many properties just out and about that are just saturating everything yeah saturating the airwaves i would say mm -hmm. and man what a time to be a young filmmaker and a young creator because you know it, i'm not super old but i'm old enough to be when i was an aspiring young filmmaker things were still being made on film. We hadn't mm -hmm. really tapped the digital medium yet. When we stopped making our short films and kind of decided to go be adults in the real world, YouTube hadn't even come out yet. So yeah. we always joke that if we had waited like maybe two more years and kept on pushing through, the YouTube explosion of getting people's content seen, and not only seen, but like followed and monetized and gone viral, Viral wasn't even a word back when I was in my early days of production. Mm -hmm. What a time now where you can do feature-length films on your phone. You can put them exactly. on YouTube. You can put them on Vimeo. You can just share them with the world. And we've seen a lot of people successfully form careers out of that. And mm -hmm. I feel like we have to be a little bit more flexible with how we define what a filmmaker is these days. You know, there still is that kind of like old guard where it has to be shot on film. It has to be shown on a theater. I say, if you create something that you're proud of and it finds an audience, you have every right to call yourself a filmmaker and a creator. Now Precisely. it's up to you to figure out how to make a living off of it. You know, that's, I mean, that's always the transition piece is going from just making it to making a lifestyle career out of it, making money from it, all of that. But I think, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword in a way nowadays. You know, you do get an easier access to be able to share things. But I think a lot of times people don't know how much building still has to go into it, you know. And, and I'm guilty of that myself, thinking like, okay, you put something out there and that thought of going viral is so prevalent that it's like if it's not an overnight sensation, somehow you think it's like a failure. Yeah. 
And I think people really need to take a step back and realize that like, that's, you know, that is the exception to the rule that isn't the rule, you know, and with these careers comes a lot of building, a lot of audience gathering, a lot of people admiring what you're doing and just being social, you know, that's the part of social media everyone seems to forget is that mm -hmm. you do have to be social and you do have to actually interact with people and you have you to know, market just yeah. because you put something out there doesn't mean it's going to find its audience on its own. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be spread and talked about. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said about like also the ego check. And, you know, there I always like to think that some of my favorite filmmakers were the ones that really had to hustle. And there are some filmmakers that came from like privilege and I have nothing against them, but there's something about, I think you could see it with stand-up comics. You can see it with actors that came from like middle America and didn't grow up in Los Angeles. That hustle and that drive really equals longevity in the long run because mm -hmm. they kind of have like their ego in check where they've already started humble. And sometimes they have to like check that humility throughout their career. Like, oh my God, I'm too big and I am not really exploring my craft right now. I'm just cashing in paychecks to look pretty on screen. And then exactly. they disappear for a couple of years and come back and do some kind of like indie dark film that kind of gets them relevant again. I like mm -hmm. seeing those transitions in actors and directors. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the ones that came from, from Humble Beginnings. No, I was just going to say, I mean, look at, uh, you know, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, two prime examples of, you know, hitting it big and then realizing this isn't what they wanted and really going into that indie scene in a big way. I mean, he is Batman now, but even yeah. I would have a hard time turning down Batman. <laughs> I was, yeah, I mean, he's definitely gone back into that stratosphere, but yeah, he 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 did his time on the indie scene, but but I'll yeah, give, once you're Batman, it's just like. But I will give him, I'll give him some credit, as in he is not the cookie cutter Batman. You know that Batman's pretty dark. It's mm -hmm. you know pretty. I mean, they just keep getting more and more broody with all the <laughs> the Batmans that come out, but. Yeah, I agree, especially his work with the Safdie brothers in Good Time, like 100%. Yes. That's the kind of thing I like seeing him. I loved him in The Lighthouse. So he still has his street cred with me, even though he's Batman. Yes. <laughs> so Baltimore, man, are you from there originally? Mm-hmm, born and raised. And just from reading your bios and like looking into the stuff that you've created, there really is kind of like a hometown pride in your creativity and your productions and it seems with your crew, with the city of Baltimore. Yeah, so I mean, Baltimore has always been a, a big source of inspiration for me. And I really borrow a lot from, you know, like John Waters and the fact that yeah. he, you know, that's his thing. And it's just like, it's easy to, to want to showcase it because Baltimore is such a unique city. And, you know, they don't, they call it Charm City for a reason. It definitely has its quirks and its cool different people that live here and you get to experience so many different things and you know it just it's just such a vibrant city so I'm like you know why not put that front and center as much as I can and we really haven't seen it for a while unless you count the wire which kind of you know showed the dark side of it but mm -hmm. I always liked like the early days of like the 70s and 80s where you had John Waters showing you like the Baltimore that was a little bit more quirky and then you had Barry Levinson showing you the Baltimore that was more nostalgic, you know, like with Diner and stuff like that. I really mm -hmm. appreciated like those two different viewpoints on it. But honestly, I haven't seen a lot of Baltimore in in film lately that at least sticks to my mind. Like this is Baltimore and it's showing me what the city has to offer. 
Are all of your projects and films based around Baltimore? Yeah, I mean, as much as I can, like I try to keep it in Baltimore proper. And yeah, I think like we've sort of had this problem since The Wire, which of course is an amazing series, no doubt about that. Yeah. But I think the the stigma has been in that showcasing the the darker side as if that's all we have to really export out into the world. But I think there's definitely space there to show that quirkiness again because it's definitely here. You know, I just think it's, you know, from that success, there has been a lot of demand for showcasing that more underground style. Because even, you know, I think right now you have We Own This City, which is another sort of, it's from the creators of The Wire and it's that crime sort of thing again. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there's definitely a chance to showcase the cool side of Baltimore, so to speak, again. And like with this one script I have right now, it definitely has a little bit of that quirkiness in there. So, you know, hopefully it, it sort of makes it circle back around that, you know, it's not just known for that because I get people all the time from out of town that are like, is it like the wire? You know, like, is, <laughs> is it? And I'm like, no, it's not, you know, that's, it's not a thing, you know, it's like, so it's just interesting that that has been the modality sort of ever since that show kind of landed in such a big way. Yeah, I get it too. Um, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, so it used to be people asking me if it was like Big Love, and now mm. people are asking me if it's like uh, Banner of Heaven uh, that's on FX right now, and I'm like, well, I mean, I guess it was, you know, because <laughs> that show took place like back in the 70s, 80s, but it's a lot more progressive now, and I had a couple indie filmmakers on a few weeks ago with their short film, which is going to the Paris Film Festival, and awesome. one of the things that they've been talking about is, and I've, I've been living here for years, so I understand this, is that Salt Lake City is a untapped resource for not only talent when it comes to filmmakers, but also actors, dancers. We've seen like a lot of ballroom dancers that made it big on TV come from Salt Lake City, Utah. What does Baltimore's talent scene look like? I mean, Baltimore, it's, it's definitely vibrant in that there's a lot of great creators in the film space there's a lot of great talent like we have such a huge pool of like especially poet talent mm. like there's a lot of spoken word poets that are here doing great work um and and from a writing standpoint too there's a pretty vibrant scene of, of writers here so i think it's one of those things where it's like there's a lot that we have to offer just something isn't quite like mining the gap yet you know, mm -hmm. it's not kind of catching on beyond the scope of like the mid-Atlantic sort of region. Um, and I don't really know where, like what the disconnect is with that. I don't know if it's whether people just aren't aiming for that level of stuff. If it's just not because there is so much saturation, it's just kind of getting lost in, in the shuffle. But I mean, I know for me personally, like my hope is to really be able to work at both ends of the coast and you know especially nowadays with how small everything has gotten with zoom and you know all of the connections we can make through that yeah like i i, I want to be able to stay here and and make this like kind of uh a unique sort of hub in that i can create all over the world but like baltimore is always like the home base for everything so i, I think there's a lot of people trying to get the scene growing um it's just a matter of you know Maybe the tax incentives getting a little better because they were and then they weren't. So it's been a little back mm. and forth with that. And then also just, I think, you know, good positive word of mouth spreading from the productions that we bring out from here. What are the vehicles that you are using right now to get your production seen? Are you mostly online? 
Are you trying to get into film festivals? Like, how are you marketing your stuff? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is definitely from an online perspective, for sure. Uh, Instagram, Twitter. I uh, haven't delved too much into TikTok, but uh, uh, no, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid of it too. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't even gotten an account with it yet. It's it's <laughs> like I already feel pulled in enough directions. I'm like, I don't know if I can handle another uh, social media app. But yeah, it's a lot of that. And then film festivals are definitely there, but I have you know, in my own opinion, kind of veered a little bit away from the saturation that exists now with film festivals. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're definitely at a point where we have a ton of these smaller festivals that are great, that they're organized and happening, but they don't really add much value in everything when you're putting those laurels on the posters and such. Because uh, I think some people can get definitely carried away with just applying for everything and just trying to get all these laurels on the posters. And, you know, for someone like me who looks at a lot of indie films, like indie indie films, that just, again, it's another thing that just turns into noise. Yes. You know, if if you have like Sundance or Slamdance or Tribeca, great. Like I will notice those in a heartbeat. But once you start getting into those smaller, like really, really small scale stuff, it's just a little frivolous and maybe financially the best move uh, to be putting out all the fees and everything else that you have to for those festivals. I mean, yeah, it's a double edged sword, man, because like, let's say 20, 30 years ago before digital really kind of broke the barrier of what you could do as a filmmaker, you kind of had like a governor on you of like, okay, creation was on. 16, maybe Mm -hmm. super eight, maybe 35 if you're lucky. And if it was digital, it better be good looking digital. The quality and the standards were a lot higher because the festivals were fewer. But even though digital was a great way for us to be able to start creating things cheaper and having them more accessible to other people to see, of course, you're going to have that influx of festivals to show them. And it really is just this weird kind of up and down scale of the quality of the project. Like you could have an amazing looking film that might get lost in the noise, like you said, of an underproduced film that's just getting sent to every festival, you know, and just kind of plugs up the the screens. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, that's not like saying that people shouldn't be creative, but I do get the frustration of being a young filmmaker and a young creator and thinking that festivals are the way to get your your product scene exactly and you know it's one of those things too where it's just uh, like you were saying like i remember first starting out and it was for me it was without a box i remember without a box and when you would have to make dv like i remember making the dvd copies to send out and it would make you a little more selective because you're like i gotta i don't want to have to spend all this money on the postage on the dvds Mm -hmm. on all of that and so you would kind of aim for the bigger ones and kind of leave it at that but yeah, as it's become digital, it's just a matter of sending a uh, like a screener link. Yeah, and man, you could go. I've seen people. It's just you can go. Sky's the limit with that, and it can get wild. But like I said, it all just turns into noise after a minute or two. So I always try to give that little bit of warning out there, especially to filmmakers starting out, because like you said, it's it's not the exact route anymore. You know, yeah. there's a lot more things that you can be focusing on that'll be better for your visibility and career in the long run. Now, what about like Baltimore's, let's say, uh, talent pool or collective? Because one of the things that really helped me out when I started podcasting was 
finding other podcasters that had either similar uh, shows or similar opinions and ideas that I did and kind of like using each other's resources, whether it was guests, whether it was technology, whether it was the knowledge of how to get your podcast monetized. I thought when I first got into this game, it would be kind of like cutthroat of like, I got to get more downloads than that guy. And I got to get more recognition than that guy. But what I found was the more that you networked and resourced and pooled your resources, you actually got more downloads, more exposure, more listens. It gave you more longevity in your show and a little bit more confidence that you were doing something good. Do you have mm -hmm. anything like that in Baltimore when it comes to your creative groups? Like, are there production companies that maybe pool resources or maybe like share equipment or, or shooting space? Well, I mean, we definitely, we have a okay-ish like hold on that as far as having, like we have the film office here, of course, and then there are some like film coalition type things mm -hmm. going on. But as I, I think that's definitely something that does need to be improved in the area as a whole. Um, I know at least from my perspective, you know, getting out of film school in 2012, what I saw was a lot of people that I graduated with and, you know, the extended network from there. Uh, really, a lot of people jumped ship over to Atlanta when, when that started really getting hot. Thanks, Tyler so Perry. I, <laughs> yeah, so I think it was like, you know, we, we were building to something really cool. And then a lot of those people that were building that up sort of moved to there. Went where the work was. And, yeah. yeah, and so I think now we're sort of in this like rebuilding mode where we have a lot of people, but it's just the education, I think, needs to get better. I think people kind of getting into the different disciplines just need to know more about what steps they should be taking and stuff. Because I see a lot of the issues of more so people trying to make productions in a kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a little bit of a manipulative way, you mm -hmm. know, where it's a lot of this doing everything for free. I'll try to help you out with this and that. And then just people going back on those statements and stuff. So it's always something that you never want to see, but it's definitely something I've experienced a little bit over the years with people. So yeah. I think just trying to build up some kind of like educating body that's more accessible to people would prove to be very beneficial to the Baltimore like film scene and art scene as a whole. Well, come on, Spartacus. You sound like the guy to do it. Let's get going. <laughs> I got to start getting the troops together and make it happen. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about your novel that you just released, Focus Puller. First of all, great title. The <laughs> second you. you sent that to me, I'm like, oh my God, I could just see the poster from like the 1970s with like the focus puller, just like intent looking at something. <laughs> kind of like, uh, did you ever see the movie Peeping Tom? No, I haven't seen that one. It's a Michael Powell movie from like the late 1960s and it's about a focus puller who's also a serial killer, but it's got a great poster of him just like looking through the eyepiece and it's just like this really great close up of him. And I kind of imagined that. And then I saw the cover of your book. I'm like, yeah, that one's pretty good too. But yeah, <laughs> I think cinematically, when I hear a title, I instantly see a poster, even if I don't know what the story is, I'm like mm -hmm. Focus Puller. Um, <laughs> tell us a little about, about it. Yeah. So Focus Puller is uh, about, it's basically a big character study of a filmmaker named Ben. And what we're doing is sort of following these small vignettes throughout his life from like childhood to like young adulthood 
Um, and what we're getting is just these little snippets of who he is and, you know, how he acts in different situations. But then we also have these moments where we are hearing the perspective of the people he's had, like the women he's had relationships with over the years. So we sort of get like both sides of a coin. We get good and bad moments. And it's really up to the reader at the end of the day to have their judgments, have their thoughts about this character and take away hopefully things that maybe they've experienced in their own life. And a big part of it is to really try to think about things from other perspectives. And it's been cool to see a lot of people picking up on that and saying, yeah, you know, I don't do that enough. I don't think about maybe what this person is going through or thinking. And so, yeah, it's been really cool response so far. What was your catalyst for coming up with that story and actually putting it down on paper? I mean, for me, a lot of it is based off of like different things that I've experienced in my life. So finding an outlet to sort of get these moments that I've been kind of thinking over for a long time on the page was just a huge kind of cathartic experiment. And, you know, it was just one of those things where I knew I had to get myself together for a full novel and just to have this ability to sort of pick apart these moments and these stories, like these short stories that I had in my head was just really something I wanted to do. And uh, originally it wasn't even going to be in a more of a nonlinear style. I was wanting it to be more linear. But once I started picking it apart, I was just enjoyed the fact that each chapter you kind of wouldn't know what area in time we're in. And the the fun the coolest Easter egg of it that I feel like some people have picked on already is that if you look at the titles of most of the chapters, they are actually titles of films that came out the same year in which the that chapter is taking place. Okay, I like so, that. Yeah, so you can do a little research and find out. Okay, this movie came out in you know ninety eight, so that's where this you know year of the the little vignette comes from and stuff like that. Is this a novel only, or is this something that you would also maybe adapt into something for the screen? So, for my part, it's a novel only. Gotcha. I've always said that, like, if somebody wanted to come along and turn it into their own screenplay, I would be all in for that. Um, but for me, I think like the the form in which I have it is great, and I'm happy with like leaving it at that. But if a studio comes along and says we'll pay you like you know a good <laughs> amount of money, I will take back those words instantly. <laughs> <laughs> you just wouldn't want to produce it yourself. For you, it's a novel. I totally get that. Um, there, there are a lot of things that I have like written in, let's say, essay or blog form that people are like, oh, you should turn that into a short film. I'm like, no, my brain doesn't work that way. Like When mm -hmm. I write narratively, it kind of stays that way. If I am writing a script, a screenplay, a scene, a monologue, my brain automatically formats it into that. And I have a hard time crossing the two over. Same with the podcasting. Like sometimes I have to go back and listen to episodes to rediscover something that I said that someone said was relevant at the time. Mm -hmm. I honestly just remember the conversation. I'm not remembering what I said. I remember what my guests said because they're the ones on my show talking, you know, yeah. I'm the one getting information out of them. So exactly. yeah, I definitely see what you're talking about with that. So yeah, excellent. Now where, pe where can people find focus puller right now yeah so right now the easiest way is going to be amazon um it's of course you just search for it under books you'll find it and then hopefully 
it's in about five or six indie bookstores across the country, but, you know, trying to build up that number so that it's, you know, if you're an indie bookstore goer, it'll be easily accessible in, in your neck of the woods. Awesome. That's really yeah. exciting, man. Thank you for sharing your story. And I will put all the links to to Tony Productions and your book on my website and on the episode notes of this podcast. Um, again, that's that's what I really want to be focusing on, at least one episode a month, an indie spotlight for all these new and talented creators out there. And not even that new. Some of you guys have been doing it for years. Your projects are just starting to start you know, breaking the waves, and it's a good time to jump on that kind of thing for sure. Mm-hmm. So the other reason why I wanted to have you on the show today is like talking a little bit about influential films or films that we remembered from our youth that got us excited for this medium that we talk about, you through your productions, me through this podcast. And the one that we decided to focus on today was The Court Jester. I learned to shoot. I found a little horn. I learned to toot. Now I can shoot and toot. Ain't I cute? Yes, he killed him at the palace. But playing The Court Jester is just another disguise for the amazing Mr. K in this lavish production that gives full rein to his talents. He's a dashing, impetuous lover, pitching woo in the palace with Princess Angela Lansbury. Oh, Giacomo, you are so ardent. With your permission, my lady, I'd like to go round again. Making hay in the hayloft with gorgeous Glynis John. Matching blades with ruthless Basil Rathbone. With your permission. It took me aback. I mean, I'm, this is my first time watching it, so it was a great first watch for me. I'll say that right off the bat. It's, I mean, from 1955, Danny Kaye, and I grew up with Danny Kaye, movies uh hans christian anderson secret life of walter mitty but my favorite one was this film mostly because i was an only child and so i didn't have older brothers or sisters to get into their films i grew up watching the films of my parents youth and Mm. i think that's what kind of got me more into the classics and eventually into you know cult cinema and new hollywood but these are the films that I grew up with, and this by far was my favorite Danny Kaye movie. I can't say underrated. I just want to say he's kind of been forgotten as an entertainer by some of the newer generations because a lot of his stuff isn't really relevant anymore, even though they remade Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Ben mm-hmm. Stiller. I would say the closest thing to a Danny Kaye that we have in the modern times would probably be Jim Carrey. Yeah, that's a good point. I could definitely see the the crossing of that. I mean, the way he was able to just his his facial expressions, his physicality that he obviously brought to everything. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like similarities there for sure. Yeah, maybe not so much with like the zaniness, but there's something about the controlled chaos of a performer. And that's where I think that Jim Carrey has gotten so much better at that over the years where He knows how to limit how zany he gets. I think Danny Kaye's performance, especially in this film, is a masterclass in that. What with Mm -hmm. all of his accents, with his musical numbers, he's a dancer and a performer, all of his tongue twisters. Being able to have that kind of performance and maintain it for a two-hour film with that kind of zaniness that's controlled, I mean, that's what makes this movie really work for me. Um, What was your first impression of it, man? Well, I mean, I'll say straight off, like the, I loved how 
it was very meta just to start out with. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're getting basically a, a fourth wall break from the intro and the interplay of that with the titles and everything, like very modern sensibility about it. And then the opening like big dance number and song with the, the about the Black Fox was just like, I had to go back and, and watch it through because when they were doing the parts with like the capes uh-huh. and the guys and then when it was all the, the, you know, little people popping out and everything, like I had to watch those edits again because I was like, that was so smooth. Suddenly there's two of me when two is what you see of me. Get Zeus! Three of me. That's the proper score of me. Three of us is the core of me and we can tell you, whoops, sorry, four of me. Cinematically, it's great, too. And, you know, for the 1950s, when musicals were big, when we think musicals from the 50s, we think like West Side Story, My Fair Lady, all things like that, where this one is more comedy than musical. It's Mm -hmm. the musical numbers enhance the comedy. And I think that's what even people who hate musicals love this movie because it doesn't feel like a musical because the songs enhance the comedy. Exactly. And that's what I was exactly thinking after I watched it. It was like, it it was a musical, yes, but it did not feel that way. And it didn't feel like, you know, whenever, growing up, it was a lot of like Disney and stuff like that. So when I think of musicals, it's just like, all right, we got like five minutes and then we're into a song again and then another five, you know, but that wasn't the vibe here at all. And just the mixture of that with the intricate like dance numbers and everything like that was just... It was just straight up entertaining and just awesome to sit through from start to finish, really. And hilarious. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't you don't laugh as much in musicals as you do in this film. And a lot of the funny performances in this film aren't even played for laughs. There's a combination of like the comedians like Danny Kaye, who of course is like the guy who is there for the laughs. But then all the rest is really based on performance and wordplay. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. Basil Rathbone as the villain in this film, most notably a Sherlock Holmes, most notably from the adventures of Robin Hood, you know, a very kind of serious actor in this slapstick musical. And what makes his performance so great is that he's not playing it for laughs. He is playing that same character in this slapstick comedy musical. Yeah. And I, I looked it up. uh, Interesting fact. I think they said this was his last sword fight on film that he ever did. And it's a great one. And he was mm-hmm. known for being like one of the greatest uh, swashbucklers in, in cinematic history at the time. People really didn't know it because he all, always played the villain. You know, people were always watching either Douglas Fairbanks or Errol Flynn doing the swashbuckling, but he was actually a highly skilled swashbuckler. And mm-hmm. in that impressive scene where he's fighting with uh, Danny Kaye, where he switches from brave to cowardly, brave to cowardly, Basil Rathbone essentially choreographed that scene because it was so dangerous if he's like not knowing how he's going to fight. He's like, let me lead you. I will lead the way so you won't get hurt. It'll look great on film. And it is, in my opinion, one of the coolest sword fights in cinema history, like right on par with the one from Princess Bride. Yeah, I mean, it's epic. There's no doubt about that. And it's like surprisingly just the length of it in itself is just like yeah. so. And and that's what kind of blew me away on a lot of scenes for the film is just like, it's not just that they're doing these big things or doing these cool moments. It's that they're they're holding on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not 
like, hey, we just did this for two seconds to just show that we could do it. It's like, no, we're, we're really like honing this in, which is just really cool to see. I mean, they create these gigantic set pieces for these scenes to play in. So, of course, they're going to utilize them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they do an amazing job with that. Some of the other cast members we have in here, you know, very surprising to see. So you've got Glynis Johns, who most people would know as the mom from Mary Poppins, uh, who sings, you know, Sister Suffragettes. She's kind of mm-hmm. like the female heroine in this. And it's interesting to me because the Black Fox character is kind of like a mix of Robin Hood and Batman. Yes. Like <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's this much. mythical figure that lives out in the woods and like steals from the rich and tries to bring down this this monarchy that's been built. But at the same time, he's kind of got like this brooding mysteriousness and a mask and, you know, his own little crew of, of henchmen, mm-hmm. which would make uh Glennis John's character kind of like his Batgirl. Cause she's, she's got a mask, she's got a Cape and she's out there fighting alongside him, but she's also there to be the undercover agent, so to speak. And, and just that general kind of like, the the dynamic with between them is is like just jumps in between things especially once we get into the whole you know him being under the little control and stuff mm-hmm. and uh with the the, with the, the witch. princess yeah, yeah and, and everything like that so yeah i mean i thought she definitely it was cool to see that too cuz again there is that more modern sensibility of like a more direct female heroine although that does get kind of like taken aback a little bit which is you know for the time it it was still pretty cool to see that that concept was there to begin with you know yeah eventually she has to play like the damsel in distress Mm -hmm. but she starts off as this real strong soldier character she is there to fight for the cause the complete opposite of that is the damsel not in distress (laughs) the spoiled (laughs) princess played by a young and charming Angela Lansbury. Which is just, you know, in- interesting to see that that whole dynamic play out between, you know, the the arranged marriage and I'm going to throw myself from the <laughs> highest balcony and like, everything. Every day she threatens <laughs> to throw herself off the balcony. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I mean, this is a random aside, but just the, the scene where b- before everything sort of gets into motion, where they're showing the baby with the birthmark. Mm-hmm. That was just, again, like, it's felt very modern. It was just like, wow, they're just, there's the butt with the little yeah. stamp, you know? It's just <laughs> so good, that that little things like that in the film. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the story of the film, the world that it creates, really isn't too original because it's kind of a little bit of Robin Hood. It's a little bit of, you know, Man in the Iron Mask or any of those kind of medieval stories and tales of swashbuckling and adventure, but Mm. they really combine it with this comedy and just really likable characters. Like, I think that's what really helps is that, you know, the black Fox really isn't in the film a whole lot, but he plays an important part and you want to see more of him. Yeah. Even a lot of the side characters, like the soldier that is, you know, suspicious of Danny Kaye and Glynis John's character. He comes back several times throughout the film and he's got some funny lines. They're delivered well. Basil Rathbone and his henchmen. All those performances are great. The little people are great. Like, Mm -hmm. it really is. And of course, the witch. uh, I think her name is Broomhilda in this. It's just full of likable characters and they give them just the right amount of screen time to move the story forward so you just don't feel bored with like one person's story. And I like films that do that. Well, you're focused on 
you, you, you have your main heroine, you have your main hero, but you've got plenty of side characters that you're perfectly comfortable taking a break with and getting mm-hmm. some side story exposition. I think that's just the way I like to see films made. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely something that does get a little missed in modern filmmaking, you know, that it becomes just too much of a focus on one character or, or, you know, having the typical, like, two main characters and then, like, a comedy relief character, you know, all those little tropes that get kind of thrown around now. Yeah. So, yeah, it is cool to see that. And, I mean, you're right, like... Just the the little scene where he's posing as like an old man and you have the soldier. But yeah, <laughs> so great. Like but yeah, I mean that the guy playing the the soldier, you know, just being that that uh, what are you talking about? You know, and just that interaction between the two is just awesome. I like, mean, pretty much anytime that guy shows up, the way I think of it is he is like the Bud Abbott of this film. He is just there to play the straight man to all of uh-huh. Danny Kaye's nonsense and all the scenes they share together. And it works. It's a brilliant combination. It's classic comedy 101, but it works. That's why we like it, you know? And I had to look it up because uh, in the film, they have the exchange where it's, you know, the get it, got it good yeah. thing. And I was like, is this the origin of that? And then lo and behold, it is. It, that is the origin of that, which is... You Ferguson, the others, get the justice bags. You've arrived not a moment too soon. When do we start? Tonight. Good. I'd like to get in, get on with it, get it over with and get out. Get it? Got it. Good. That was an interesting song you sing. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it, old man. Did it go like this? Ask her about your business. What is the first step? Get me to the king's chambers. King's chambers? Yes. Very well, if you say so. It may be the key to the whole plan. You get in? Got it. Good. Yes, yes, I'll see Chris Because I used that so many times and had no idea that this <laughs> is where that sort of started from, which is cool. Well, I mean, like, the the alliteration and tongue twisters and wordplay in this film, I mean, Danny Kaye is pretty much known for that. It's kind of like when, when there are films starring stand-up comedians that are basically plotted around their stand-up routines. If they've got, like, a classic zinger or a classic line they kind of build these movies around them so they can deliver that line so the audience can be like, ah, he said it. This Mm -hmm. kind of is the same thing where you are going to have Danny Kaye do his classic wordplay, a lot of them through his songs as a jester, but then the ever classic flagging with the dragon, pellet with the poison exchange. (laughs) I mean, that is classic. Uh, Even people who've never seen this movie, I think have it somewhere in the back of their mind that they've heard it before. And it's just mm-hmm. an amazing exchange. That whole scene is just fantastic. As he drinks the toast. What? Listen, I have put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the figure of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle? Yes. But you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. Uh, I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what? The chalice from the palace. Hmm? It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. Does the chalice from the palace have the pellet with the poison? No, the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice. The chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see? The pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. So easy, I can say it. Well, then you fight him. Listen carefully. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like one of those things where, you know, I feel like nowadays it would be, it would be there, it would be present, but it, it, they just go on with it in such a good way that it's just like, oh my, you know, just the fact of them getting those lines delivered is just like mind-blowing in a sense because it's just... It's it's a lot. That was a lot to take in, and just the fact that they just kept it going 
you know, with everybody. And the whole thing with the lead up with uh, him and the, the other noblemen mm-hmm. and they're both, you know, walking like, which one do I do? Like trying yeah. to figure <laughs> it out. Just so good. So classic. Up until the point where they fight each other. Uh-huh. Which that whole scene is pretty much something straight out of a Looney Tune, you know? It's like it's it may as well be Bugs Bunny in the suit of armor, you know, with all the stuff that's going on. Again, uh-huh. it's just great. Like that's the kind of film and the way that was made is what I feel that films these days are missing. Like I think studios have forgotten how to play these stories and these films to the human psyche. They are showing mm-hmm. you set pieces and costumes and CGI and all the stuff like that. What they forget to do is get you invested in the character. They forget to make you laugh. They forget to show some humility. I will say that some of the MCU films did a pretty decent job, but I don't think that was the studio. I think that was the performer bringing that to life. Like Iron Man was not written the way Robert Downey Jr. plays him. Robert yes. Downey Jr. brings that heart to Iron Man. Because other than that, Iron Man's generally unlikable. Exactly. And I was going to say, I was never a big fan. Like, I remember the Iron Man cartoons and stuff like that. Just never really did it for me as a character. But yeah, I think it's just when you have that, like, lightning in a bottle with the actor, that is what brings that about. Because there is, like, it's there is this kind of formulaic coldness about a lot of what is being produced And I think the issue kind of comes out from that whole focusing on algorithms and market demands and and all of those things. And it does. It just makes things way more cookie cutter. And I think, you know, even though people, it sells tickets and all that kind of stuff, I think it's really just turned into more of a fear of missing out almost for people. When, When you build up the marketing so much that you make it almost an event, I think that's why people tune in because they know that they have something to share with other people that will also have watched it. Less so than it is more about like, man, I really want to come into this because I know this story is just going to blow me away. You know, I don't think people really go at it that way anymore. I agree. And, you know, this might be a hot take too, because I'm a real fan of auteurs. I'm a real fan of new Hollywood directors and producers and filmmakers. But there is something to be said about kind of like the unspoken curse that they put on Hollywood that still lives to this day. And that is, you know, just kind of like the egomaniacal mind of a director where this has to be recognized as my work. This has Mm -hmm. to be recognized as my thing. I kind of feel that Hitchcock kind of was the one that led the way with that. You couldn't watch a Hitchcock film and not know it was a Hitchcock film. What I liked about films like this from the 50s and from the 60s, especially some of the musicals, the director was just there to make it happen. Like there is some ego. There has to be to be able to control a production. But, you know, I could not tell you who directed this film just based on the visual style or the way the pacing was. It was made to really champion the writers, the performers, and the costumers. You know, like, what a great costume set this is, too. You know, you've oh, got yeah. Edith Head did the costumes for this, you know. So there was a lot of talent behind this, but it was meant to really promote the film and the performances, not to make a name for the director, you know. And I think, yeah, I mean, expanding on that, the whole auteur theory in general is just kind of 
been one of those things where it has made us really focus on, okay, who directed it as if that is the only thing, but you're right. It is so much more than that. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like directors are certainly there. They're controlling the set. There's no doubt about that, but there are just so many voices that are all coming into it even down to, you know, just people suggesting little ideas for things like shots, compositions maybe, or line delivery or just all of this stuff. So it, it, it's so much bigger than just a director. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we really have had this long time standing, you know, it's all about the directors and that's it, sort of a mentality. And, you know, maybe with some time like that, that will start to change that people recognize that more. But yeah, unfortunately, it is one of those things. And I think, yeah, it would be Hitchcock, definitely, because everything Hitchcock, I mean, his name was just all over that. And then I'm pretty sure he had those thoughts about like actors just kind of being more like puppets to, to have on screen than anything. I've heard him refer to them as chess pieces. You know, yes. you, night takes rook. That's where you stand. That's your mark. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I I would say, though, um, an, a devil's advocate argument to that is where I think we are seeing a more cohesive and impressive collaboration of creators when it comes to directors and writers is in streaming, in TV, where you've got like multiple episodes of, let's say, a 10-part limited series that all have some very renowned directors directing each episode, but the point is to make the entire series cohesive. You know, Mm -hmm. if someone gets a little too much flair or a little too much attention to one episode, it breaks the vibe that this project is trying to create. So I think when it comes to television and these limited series, having some of these more renowned directors take over for, for an episode or two, it's almost kind of like uh, putting their ego in check because now they're almost like a, a skillsman for hire. They're not hired because they're so-and-so. They're hired because they're a good director and we need a good director to tell this particular part of this story and not overshadow the rest of it. So maybe that's like the next step in that evolution. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably exactly why we're in such a you know renaissance of television mm-hmm. production too. Uh, I mean, it has exploded so much. I mean, you really only used to have networks like HBO really being the ones doing that. But now with these streaming networks, it's every single one is trying to have these big sort of high budget, high production value television series. And that's really what the market, you know, as far as what I've noticed over the last like couple years of just being out there pitching and things like that is it has become a huge segment of the market that people are looking for projects and almost to more than film sometimes it seems. So let's play a game here where we know what's out in the theater right now because it's 10 screens of a Harry Potter movie or a 10 screens of a MCU movie, hopefully not a Star Wars movie for a while because <laughs> we're, we're done with that. But let's say a film like this all of a sudden pops up. Mm -hmm. What do you think the response is going to be to a film like this? Is it going to be just quickly ignored or is it going to be a breath of fresh air for audiences that are just so tired of what we've been fed for the last 20 years? 
I mean, that's one of those things where the, the idealist in me would love to say, this is a breath of fresh air, people cling to it, it explodes, all of this stuff. But I can just as easily see it being one of those things where it's like, it's there and people talk about it and people in the know are really championing it, but it kind of falls between the cracks at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I think it really is. And I think that's why we are in the place we are because I, I basically just played the role of every studio executive in the world <laughs> where you're just like, man, I could take this gamble and this could really pay off or I could throw this budget at it and man, it just goes nowhere and I'm stuck with this goose egg that maybe will make back money after the facts and caught circles and stuff, but probably not. So yeah, I think that's the the fear that a lot of these bigger studios and operations are having because, you know, you're relying so much on putting out a lot of budget, but then, you know, trying to cross that billion dollar mark. It's just like insane how much that seems to happen. Realistically, I would love it if it was something that people just said, hey, this is different. Like, let's, you know, make sure that we support this so that we get more projects like that. Uh, that would be a, the greatest outcome that could be possible. But like I said, I could easily see it just being ignored and, and definitely known about in circles, but that's about as far as it, it gets to, you know? I mean, maybe it's just a waiting game because if you think about it now, you know, for the longest time, horror films just didn't mean anything anymore. They Like people were tired of them. And then Blumhouse and A24 have kind of brought them back at like a medium scale, you mm -hmm. know? We're not talking big budget studios throwing money and more money and more money at something, trying to make it work, and then just collapsing on itself. <clears throat> the Mummy with Tom Cruise, <laughs> but and also you're you're seeing like people like Ari Aster and Richard Eggers making like essentially Hammer films from the '70s. These kind of like dark folksy horror films that only film geeks like us really enjoyed, and now they're being made for the masses. Maybe it just takes a little bit more time and someone who can really put out a good medium scale project to start building that. Because, I mean, everyone, everyone thought that the musical was going to return with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and all his stuff. I mm. think the problem with that was is it was given to big studios who did their big studio nonsense to it instead of giving it something to work with for like ground up, like build that groundswell and not just exactly. shove something down our throats. So maybe... Maybe we'll get something eventually that can bring back films like this, start small, work their way up, you know, because I agree with you. I think on a big scale, it would just be too much for people to handle. Yeah, I think it's, it definitely could be big time hit or miss. But I mean, you do. You get these. I mean, you had like Blair Witch Project, which came out and sort of redefined what that meant. And then, of course, Paranormal Activity, which sort of redefined what that meant. And now we have this whole kind of that's their whole thing is get these medium budgets not huge risk takers but they're interesting they're different they are taking some swings at different concepts and stuff and i think people do really respond to that but i think on a mass scale you know people just want the safety nets of things yeah. that they're familiar with and then the whole you know basically just cashing in on nostalgia at this point is just so hugely and poorly prevalent that it's just you know, hopefully one of those things that people do eventually catch on to because uh, it has become kind of a, an issue that is just that's all they're doing nowadays. I mean, Jurassic Park, great yeah. example of that or Jurassic World. Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, uh -huh. 
And also, you know, I, I, I just kind of thought about this. You know, films like this kind of do exist, but not live action. This story mm. is essentially a live action cartoon. So when you think of movies like Tangled or Shrek, they kind of play in this playground. So a story like this probably would be more suitable for an animated feature these days. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't love to see someone tackle something like this on a live action scale. But these days, I think audiences are just more in tune with it being animated. Yeah, I think people just have that. I think that transition was made again, going back to those like the Disney projects of the 90s and stuff like that. I think that stipulation has become a big piece of everyone's sort of psyche at this point where it's like, yes, you can do these things live action and totally respect when they go that route. But yeah, I think more people just say it's an easier thing for them to do when it's, you know, maybe more kid oriented and it's animated and all of those things. Um, so yeah, I think the the natural state that a studio would probably see something like this in would be to make it animated. But if it was something that was made live action, it would be really cool to see how it would be done and just the production and the way they tackle everything. Because it's like, you know, I think the temptation now, of course, is like, what do you do CG? What do you do practically? Right. You know, all of those things start to come into play. And then in a few years, it'll be virtual. It'll be yeah. <laughs> holograms in your living room. I don't know. Maybe that's the next generation of musicals. I mean, anyway. you have those those big sets where it's just all basically projections and things that they've, what, they did the Mandalorian with that. And yeah. that whole thing is becoming its own sort of genre in itself. Well, man, um, have you suggested this film to any of your family, friends, uh, production company team members? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I actually was just sharing the this that intro scene last night with uh, my parents and my sister, and just saying like, "You got to check this out." And uh, my mom and sister hadn't seen it, but my dad actually said he remembered catching it way back in the day yeah. on like a late night rebroadcast through like HBO or something like that. Um, and was just you know had nothing but good things, of course, to say about Danny Kay yeah. and everything. But yeah, I mean, it's. Like I said, it's something that has slipped by my radar, so I'm I feel so much better for having seen it, and will definitely continue to share it with friends and stuff like that because I genuinely enjoyed it start to finish. That's awesome, and that's the point of this show is to speak to fascinating creators like you and get the word out on these films that may have been big in their day, but now just seem kind of obscure and begging for a reintroduction into the society of filmmaker uh, society of film watchers. So. Mm -hmm. awesome man agree more. do you have any uh, things you want to plug besides your novel like what else you got that we can find your creations on um well i mean you know I, if you go to like my website and stuff like that i do have a few of the short films i've done over the years but really i mean i'm just in this position now where i'm transitioning over to the feature space so hopefully in the next like year or so i'll have more news on that front but yeah for now it's really just a novel and just checking things out, showing love. And, you know, I have a blog that goes pretty regularly that showcases a lot of indie talent too. So always having updates there to check out and everything. So, yeah, it's just keeping up to date really. Awesome, man. Well, you've also been an amazing guest, so I'd love to have you back on the show just to talk about the progress of your projects and movies. Like, this is what we do. We talk about movies so people can listen and discover new movies. And who better to talk about than an enthusiast like me? Yeah, man, I'd love it. That would be amazing. Awesome. Well, thanks, Daniel, for uh, joining me on the show today. 
Uh, like I said, I will have links to his website, projects, and the Amazon link to his novel, Focus Polar, on my website, thecultworthy.com, as well as in the episode notes of this episode. Go out and find The Court Jester. Watch it and uh, take our word for it. You're going to have a good time with it. Daniel, yeah, it's going to be great. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. And uh, yeah, we'll have you back on the show again and see where your projects have been going, okay? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Good night, everybody.